0: Good morning, and it is good to be able to see you. Um, well, it would be good if I could see you, let me put it that way. It would be great if you were here. Uh, it, this is our fourth Sunday, being here in this room that is virtually empty. and um, uh, But I'm, I'm grateful for all of you who have joined us uh, online, and uh, we are glad that you are here. I'm, I don't want to echo what both Will and Ted have already done and welcome you to our our live stream of this service on this Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, of course, uh, is the Sunday in which the church remembers and in which it celebrates the entry of Jesus into the holy city of Jerusalem for what would be the final time before he was crucified. And for us here at Ivy Creek, uh, Palm Sunday is one of those days that we have traditionally celebrated the Lord's Supper together and we mark that time off as a moment for us to recall that Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples and, and then instituted the Lord's Supper. And, and while these are unprecedented times and, and times that do not allow for us to meet together uh, as a church family, I still want to lead us in the celebration uh, of that Lord's Supper together a little later in the service. So if you, you want to go ahead and get those elements ready, we will, we will come to them uh, in just a little while. But before we get there, I want us to look at a few verses of Scripture this morning from Luke's Gospel and, in order to prepare our hearts for that celebration. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's in this chapter of Luke toward the the second half of it that we really learn about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. We read that, that Jesus sent a couple of disciples out in front of him to go and and find a, a donkey that had been tied up. And they acquire that donkey doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, bring it back to him. And then Jesus mounts the donkey and begins to make his way toward the holy city. And and as he did, we also read in Luke's gospel that many who were on the sides of the roads and going along with him began to take their coats and throw down on the road in front of him, as it were, to make like a royal carpet for him to to walk for the for the donkey to tread upon as he made his way there. Uh, at the same time, we read in John's gospel that that people took palm branches, which was the national symbol of Israel, and they began to wave those palm branches, and many of them began to lay them down on the road as well as an expression of honor and as an expression of respect toward Jesus. And obviously that is how the name Palm Sunday got its name, is from those palm branches. And both John and Luke tell us that the crowd began to praise God with a loud voice. They began to sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But as we continue reading in Luke 19, we also read that not everyone cheered him. In fact, Luke tells us that amid all the fervor of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, among all the cheering and all of the palm branch waving and all the swell of support for Jesus, well, we read that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they did not approve of what was happening. In fact, they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus responds and says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, if Jesus' followers were to cease their praise, then the rocks would take their place. I want to say this to you this morning. I know that many of you are hurting today. Um, Just this past week, some of you were diagnosed with this coronavirus. Others of you have family members and friends who have been diagnosed with it, and, and you know very well exactly what the physical toll of, of this virus can be. Some of you have experienced more of an economic toll because over the last week, you've lost your job, you've been laid off, been furloughed. Others of you know the, the emotional suffering that has accompanied this because you are feeling isolated and you're feeling separated right now. Some of you have experienced the pain and the disappointment that has come from having things that you have looked forward to. Some of you for most of your lives. Others of you were planning on certain events to occur. And now all of those things have been taken away from you. Still others of you, you're just fearing what could potentially happen. And, and, and how all of this is going to turn out. I want to say this to you today. I want you to know that Jesus is still Lord. I want you to know that he is still the King of kings and he is still the Lord of lords. And I want you to know that heaven is still his throne and the earth is still his footstool. And I want you to know that no matter what circumstances may come our way, none of them will change the fact that the Lord is still sovereign and that he is still in control and that he still loves you. I want you to be encouraged today, even during these, these very difficult and even during these very uncertain times. And I want to encourage you, do not let the rocks take the place of your praising God, even in the midst of circumstances just such as these. Our current circumstances do not negate the reality of who the Lord Jesus is. and They do not negate the reality that we need to praise him. The world around us needs to hear Christians praising their Lord and Savior, even in the midst of times just like these. They need to hear it, and we need to do it. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. Now, back here to our passage here in Luke chapter 19, we we read that something interesting happens. As Jesus made his way toward the holy city of Jerusalem, amidst all of the shouting and amidst all of the praising and all the palm branch waving, the parade suddenly came to a halt. Somewhat unexpectedly, I would imagine, we begin to see the the one who had been the center of all of this attention. He stopped on the side of the road and he's weeping. In fact, this scene, along with the very next one that Luke tells us about in which Jesus goes into the temple and, and drives out the money changers, Both of these examples, I believe, are stark examples that show us the depth of the passion of Jesus. In fact, that is what I want us to focus our time thinking about this morning as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. I want us to consider the passionate love of Jesus and focus our attention beginning in verse 41 down through... Verse 46 of Luke chapter 19, and then we're going to move over and read from Luke chapter 22. But if you've got your Bibles there, begin reading with me in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then just turn maybe a page or so in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And read with me beginning in verse 14. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for loving us. In what continues to be in the midst of times that are uh, unprecedented for all of us, and times in which we are still struggling to try to figure out what normal is supposed to look like now and what normal will look like after this is over with. And yet we continue to come back together uh, in, in, in hopes and in prayers, just asking for your, for your Holy Spirit to give us peace and to guide us through moments like this. And Lord, we just thank you for the, the fact that you, you offer peace to us. We thank you that you offer healing. We know right now there are members of our own congregation who have been diagnosed with this COVID-19 virus. We're grateful for the fact that as far as we know, most of them are able to, to, to go on and, and will come out on the backside of this. But, Lord, we also know that there have been those who have not. And, and because that's the case and because of the, the continued information that we, we continue to see, Lord, there's, there's a lot of fear. But I pray that today you would steal our hearts And help us to recognize that you are still sovereign. You're still God. And while we may be upended by all of these things, and while our lives have been certainly been given all kinds of of speed bumps that we've had to hit, and, and many of us have had to put things on pause, we recognize that there is nothing like that with you. You're still the same yesterday and today and forever. So we come before you this morning acknowledging that and we come before you this morning opening our hearts up to you and asking for you to speak to us through your word this morning for your glory and for our good in Christ's name, amen. So in that first scene that I read for you from from Luke 19, Luke paints sort of a a completely different kind of picture from what we we might normally think about of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. As I mentioned, the crowd on the road were were shouting and they were waving their palm branches and they were throwing down their coats in front of Jesus and they were celebrating. But Jesus, on the other hand, as we see beginning in verse 41, well, he's weeping. In fact, as one has said, the triumphal entry was for Jesus a, a tearful entry. In fact, as we, we consider the passionate love of Jesus this morning, we see it demonstrated, we see it displayed for us through his weeping over Jerusalem. In fact, that's the first point that I want you to see on your outline that was emailed out to you earlier this week. If you're taking notes, just note this with me. The loving passion of Jesus is displayed through his weeping over Jerusalem. There was this spot on, on the road that Jesus was traveling and and. and and allowed him to pause and to take time to, to, to look down over the city of Jerusalem. As many of you know, this past January, I was afforded the opportunity to go to Israel for my very first time. And, and I found myself there on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Kidron Valley, down onto the old city of Jerusalem. And and, and it was this spot that offers this tremendous view of where the temple would have once stood and now it's where the dome of the rock sits and you can see the embankments and you see the walls that were built around there and you can see the gates in which Jesus would have traveled. And I can imagine in my mind's eye, Jesus sitting there atop this donkey and he, he's staring down upon that city. As he stared at her, the tears began to well up in his eyes and, and began to stream down his cheeks and his, his shoulders then, then began to shake with grief, and he began to weep. Warren Wiersbe, he he, uh, he notes that this is the second time that we've been told that Jesus wept. The first time occurs in John chapter 11 when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But what's interesting is that John uses a different word than Luke uses here. John uses a word that simply means that he cried, he shed tears. Luke, on the other hand, uses a word that embodies Im- implies a loud wail. In fact, Wiersbe states that at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept quietly, but here he uttered a loud lamentation like one mourning over the dead. And the question is why? Why was Jesus weeping? Why was he sobbing almost uncontrollably as he, as he looked down over the city of Jerusalem? Certainly we can say that this was a demonstration of his his passion. It was a a passionate outpouring of grief. But grief over what specifically? Well, in, in verse 42, we have our first clue. As he looks over the city of Jerusalem, Jesus cries out, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes what becomes clear from Jesus's words is that he was not weeping out of fear over what he was personally facing. He was not suddenly given over to self pity. Rather Jesus is weeping out of a compassionate love for the lost sinners who, who could not, or really probably better translated would not see who he was. He, He knew that the city of Jerusalem was filled with people who refused to recognize his true identity as Savior. And as the Apostle John would go on to write in his gospel, Jesus came to his own, but his own would not receive him. And the reason they would not receive him, as we go on to read in John chapter 3, is because they refused to see him for who he was. Jesus wept as he looked over that vast city of people because he understood the reality that the scriptures make plain, the reality that recognizing and trusting in Jesus to be Savior and Lord is what is absolutely necessary in order to be saved. And Jesus wept passionately because he loved Jerusalem and he loved its inhabitants and because he knew that he was her only hope for peace. Yet the eyes of the people remained blinded, and he remained hidden from them. But that first reason for his passionate weeping gives way to a second one that we see in verses 43 and 44. You see, what Jesus says next reveals to us that he knew just how much this city and its inhabitants would suffer for rejecting him. And it broke his heart. He says... He says, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. We know according to history that in 70 AD, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. The Romans laid siege On the city of Jerusalem. The stones of its city were torn down. The temple was destroyed. The streets ran with blood. 600,000 Jews were slaughtered and thousands more were taken captive. And the final verse there in verse 44 tells us why that occurred because you did not know the time of your visitation. In words of I.H. Marshall, who has commented on this, he says, The visitation that Jesus speaks of here was intended to be the occasion of salvation, but because it went unrecognized, the same visitation became the basis for a judgment yet to follow. And what Jesus does here is important. And you and I must not miss two essential points of application. You see, first of all, we must recognize that a failure to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord will result in judgment. Just as judgment was promised to Jerusalem, Jesus promised that her enemies would not leave one stone upon another because she did not know the time of her visitation. And what you must realize is that if you do not place your faith in Jesus and if you do not honor Him as your Lord, then judgment will eventually come upon you, just as it did. Upon the people of Israel. And it is that conviction that leads us to the second point of application. You see, for those of us who do profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, then his example and his compassionate love for the lost in his day should teach us in our day to mourn for our world that is lost in sin. J.C. Ryle, he has written this. He says, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But this attitude, says Ryle, is very unlike Christ." Let me ask you, does this portrait of the passionate love of Jesus, does it confront you? Like him, do you weep over the lostness of a family member or a, a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, or your community or your nation or your world? Based upon this passage and upon the testimony of Scripture, All who do not recognize Jesus as their Savior and Lord will suffer great loss in the judgment. And Jesus weeps passionately over the lost. How affected are you by his example? Now, as you ponder that question, I want you to consider with me at the same time the very next section that Luke tells us about. Because at some point after the processional into Jerusalem continued, we read that Jesus went into the temple courts. And, and as Luke tells us in verse 45, he began to drive out those who bought and who sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And it's really that that leads me to the second point that I want you to note. The second thing that I would point out to you this morning from this text is this. As we're looking at the loving passion of Jesus, we see it here displayed for us through his driving out of corruption in the temple. The loving compassion of Jesus, the passion of Jesus is displayed through his driving out corruption in the temple. Here we witness the fiery indignation of Jesus toward those who were defaming the house of God. He was angry because his father's house had been turned into a marketplace. The exact opposite of what it had been designed for. Those in charge were were, were taking advantage of people and they had commercialized the worship of God. And as Daryl Bach has written, in the very presence of God as it prepared to worship the nation, dishonored its God. And Jesus' statement gives us two clues as to how that happened. First of all, he says, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. This is a quotation directly from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 which is a prophetic passage that is concerned with the worldwide mission of the gospel. The prophet's main concern was how all peoples, everywhere across all the nations would be affected by the worship of God. And Yet Jesus, in his day, in Jesus' day, the outer court of the temple, which was, which was known to be and called the court of the Gentiles, that outer court had been turned into a marketplace where all of the animals were being sold and bartering was taking place. And Jesus was, was angry not only because of what they were doing, but what they were not doing. They were not praying to God. They were not reaching out to the lost. Not only that, but the Jewish leadership was actually keeping the Gentiles from being able to worship God, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Just imagine if you were there and you were trying to draw near to the God of the Jews, and yet you couldn't, and you couldn't pray because of all of the bartering and all of the buying and the selling that was going on around you. So so God's house was being dishonored, but then the second statement that Jesus makes tells us how God himself was being dishonored. Jesus says the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This quote is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, in which the prophet had preached at the very gates of the very temple the same message. And from this statement, we see that what made Jesus angry was that in all their buying and selling, the people had neglected the poor and they were forgetting the true worship of God. Embedded in this scene really is a clear depiction of of where Christ's passion actually lies and where your passions and my passions ought to lie. We've already seen that Jesus displays his passionate love for the lost by weeping over them. And here he displays his his passionate love for the true and total worship of his father by driving out the corruption that was occurring in the temple. And based upon what we see here, we must realize that Jesus is is no less pleased with us when we allow other things to crowd out our ability to worship the Lord with all of our hearts. The scriptures teach us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you and I must ask ourselves if the Lord is pleased with the worship of our lives. Are you regularly engaged in a life of private and, and corporate prayer in which you acknowledge your complete and your total dependence upon Him? Or is God largely ignored in your life? Are you more concerned with your bottom line and with everything that you have in your own life, your own self interests, more than you are devoting your life and everything you have to the worship and the service of the Lord? What you can be sure of is that your passions will tell you where your allegiances lie and they ultimately will reveal whom or what you worship. So let me ask you, how how does this betrayal of Jesus driving out the corruption in the temple, how does it affect you? Maybe I should ask it this way. When the Lord comes into your life and he begins to passionately clean out the corruption that is there? When he brings conviction of sin into your life, what is your response to him? Do you do you just push back against him? Do you ignore him? Do you try to justify the areas of your, of your life that do not honor him? Or do you embrace him passionately? Repenting of those things and trusting him for the grace and the mercy that you need to draw closer to him. In short, let me ask you, how responsive are you to Jesus' passion to bring conviction into your heart? Now, those are the two ways that we, we initially see the passion of Christ working out on this Palm Sunday. But I want us to break with Palm Sunday narrative here and fast forward a few days to if, of Passion Week And I want us to consider the last scene that I read for you this morning from from Luke chapter 22. Where Jesus is gathered around the table with his disciples for one last meal together. One last time for him to be able to commune with them and to pour into their lives before his crucifixion. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what lays in front of him just hours ahead. The disciples still have not been able to grasp what is going on. But Jesus knows. And in light of that, it makes what he says to them in verse 15 so wonderful for me. Listen to it again. Chapter 22, verse 15. Jesus says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's that that leads me to the third point that I want you to see in the third demonstration of pa- a passion of the love of Christ in this passage. And I want you to see the loving passion of Jesus is displayed Through the observance and the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. Verse 15, as I mentioned, always sort of hits me like a ton of brick. Um, I know that Jesus knew what was coming. And I try to place myself in the same position. If I knew what Jesus knew, if I knew that my future held for me, what Jesus knew his future held for him, would I be so fervently desiring to celebrate the Lord's Supper and celebrate Passover as it were with with disciples? Would, would Would my life be pouring outward toward others or would I be more concerned about myself? I want you to know what we see here is that Jesus is selfless even at this point. I love the way the New King James translates this verse because he says, it says there, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat. That accurately, that accurately gets, gets the, the Greek and helps us to understand it because in the Greek, the word appears twice, the desire of, of what he wanted to do. It's the repetition of that word that communicates Jesus's passion. It communicates his heart and his love for his disciples. It's as if he could just hardly contain himself. For this moment that was before him. And as if he's saying, Men, I have been waiting for this moment. I've been so looking forward to being able to celebrate this Passover with you. And as he looked into the faces of his disciples gathered around that table, his heart was full because his intense longing to share this meal with them was gonna be satisfied. I think it's also important, too, that we note the timing of this meal. Jesus fervently desired to eat it, he says, before I suffer. The word suffer there in the Greek is the word pasko, which, which means to experience feeling or strong emotion, such as, as passion or even suffering. And I would imagine that most of the time when we think of the word passion, we, we sort of correlate it with the idea of, of the concept of love, which I have endeavored to show you. It definitely does. But the word passion also is closely related to the concept of suffering. And the reason that is the case is because true love inevitably requires sacrifice. It inevitably requires suffering. Incidentally, it is, it is the form of the same word that we get that describes Jesus as being the, the Paschal Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. It comes from that same word. And those words that he says there, before I suffer... I believe they open up for us what I would consider to be one of the most beautiful pictures of selflessness and passionate love that you'll ever see. As I said, Jesus knew what was coming and he knew the torture that he was about to go through. And he knew the abandonment that he would experience, not only from these, his own disciples, but that he would also experience it around this, this, that he would experience it from his father. And in these last few hours that he shared with his friends here in the upper room, these were the last hours of safety and peace that he would have. And yet, rather than being self-consumed and focused on his own interests and what was about to happen to him, Jesus demonstrates compassion and selflessness. And with only hours to live before he would be mercilessly beaten, And crucified, Jesus desired with a fervent desire to share one last meal with his disciples and to pour into them one last time. And it was at a certain point in this meal that Jesus takes the bread, which was always a part of the Passover celebration. And he he gives thanks for it and he breaks it and he distributes it to all of his disciples. And he says to them, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when Jesus says this, we should not assume that he was in some way speaking literally. He was not saying that the bread was identical to his physical body. After all, Jesus was standing there physically in front of his disciples. They certainly would not have understood Jesus literally here. Rather, what Jesus was saying is that his The bread that he passed to them represented or signified or symbolized his body. And just as bread is basic to life, just as we cannot live without our daily bread, Jesus was saying that the daily nourishment that we need spiritually will come only from him. And also note with me the substitutionary language that Jesus uses. He tells them that this bread represented his body, which is given for you. And when he said this to his disciples, Jesus was already looking toward the cross, what he would do for them there. Jesus was speaking of himself as a saving sacrifice. He would give himself for his disciples and for us, dying in our place to pay the death penalty that we deserve for our sins. And as believers, when we say that Jesus died for us, we are saying something more than simply he died for our benefit. We are declaring that he died in our place, that in his passionate love for us, he suffered the death that we deserve to die. The spotless, sinless son of God forfeited his life so that you and I might gain ours. And then Jesus told his disciples, do this. In other words, eat this bread. and Whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Coming to the table of the Lord and and eating the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ reminds us that Christ died in our place and our confession is he died for me. So if that is your confession this morning and if your testimony is that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus to be your savior, then I invite you to take the bread that you have there in your homes and eat with me as we remember the passion Of the Lord Jesus for us. He took the bread. And he broke it. And divided it out among those. And he said take. Eat. This is my body. Given for you. And what I want you to notice is though it was not just his body that Jesus offered for us, but also his blood. Will has picked out a beautiful set of music this morning that has reminded us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. And according to verse 20, the blood of Jesus is signified by the cup of the new covenant. And what we recognize is that like the bread, the cup signified Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. In other words... The wine did not become the blood of Christ, rather it served as a representation of his blood. And what Jesus tells his disciples and what we must understand is that the blood was once and for all the atonement for sin shed by our Savior. The Jewish sacrificial system, which was still in place during the time of Christ a sacrificial system in which sheep and goats were continually sacrificed on the altar for the continual sins of the people. Well, Jesus says that with his sacrifice and with the shedding of his own blood, well, that old sacrificial system was done away with. It was fulfilled in Jesus. And what Jesus emphasized with the institution of the Lord's Supper is that it was his blood that would establish the new covenant. But also notice that the repetition of the the substitutionary language, once again, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, Jesus says, which is shed for you. In other words, it is the blood shed on our behalf that gains our salvation. Therefore, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we drink of the cup to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done, We remind ourselves not only of his sacrifice, but we also remind ourselves that he guarantees that anyone who believes that his death on the cross was for them and in their place will be forgiven of their sins and cleansed from their unrighteousness. So if that's your testimony this morning, that the blood of Jesus has covered your sins and that your confidence and your faith are in the sacrifice that he made on your behalf, then I invite you, to drink of that cup of the new covenant and celebrate the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus took the cup and he told them that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he had come into his kingdom. But in this last moment with them, he offered them the opportunity to look into that cup and to see the red of that wine that, that, that would have reminded them of his blood. And he says, take and drink. So, in these three acts this morning, we've been shown the passionate love of Jesus. He demonstrates it to us through his weeping over the lost who faced eternal judgment apart from his salvation. He demonstrates it through his passionate zeal for the worship of God and by driving out the corruption that impedes that worship. And he demonstrates it to us through the observance and the substitutionary symbolism of the Lord's Supper. And it is that that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. It is only through the passionate love of Jesus who weeps over sinners and brings conviction to our hearts and sacrifices himself in our place that we can be saved and made right with God. And what I want you to know is that it's my prayer that the passionate love of Jesus resonates with you this morning. Perhaps you've never really considered the love that the Lord has for you. Maybe you've never considered it in this way. Perhaps you've not thought of him much at all. Or if you have, perhaps your thoughts have always been that he's just sort of this distant and angry God that doesn't care and is just angry with you. What I hope that you have seen today in these three acts is that Jesus demonstrates what Peter declares in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that the Lord is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Listen, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus to save you and you would like to talk with a pastor about that, if you would like for someone to pray with you and be able to explain to you what it means to become a Christian and become a follower of Christ... I want to remind you of that phone number that Ted gave out earlier in the announcement time. You can dial 470-238-8862. 470-238-8862. And you can leave a message and that message will prompt the pastors of the church and someone will be back in touch with you shortly. You can also use that digital response card that should be there that you can use from uh, our website. We'll be glad to contact you. If you will fill that out, and submit that, someone will be back in touch with you. And we want to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ and what the next steps should be. For those of you who are believers, those of you who have trusted in Christ to save you, then then let me ask you, who has the Lord placed upon your heart to weep over because they're lost? Who are you praying for to come to Christ? If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to emulate his life, then we must develop a passion and we must develop a zeal for the lost, just like Jesus had. That passion in your life may begin by you asking the Lord to reveal and to identify someone to you that you can begin praying for so that they will come to know him. The reality is is that all who die without having placed their faith in Jesus will face a horrible and sure judgment. And as believers, we must do all that we can to reach them with the passionate love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as believers, we must continue to allow the Lord to purify our hearts and to bring conviction into our lives where we have disobeyed and dishonored him. So the Lord Jesus desires to be just that. He desires to be Lord of our lives. And in his passionate love for the Father and in his zeal to see his Father honored in our lives, he will drive out the corruption in our lives that impedes the Father's honor and worship. And I want you to know, rather than chafing at that, rather than resisting it, we should receive it with grateful hearts, knowing that he is passionately loving us. It is only through the passionate love of Jesus who weeps over sinners and brings conviction to our hearts and sacrifices himself in our place that we can be saved and made right with God. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this word today and I thank you for the opportunity to be able to once again celebrate this Lord's Supper that reminds us so much of the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. It reminds us of our need because of our sin. It reminds us of the love that that drove Jesus to the cross. It reminds us of the love that, that he still has for us, even as believers, to continue to bring conviction of sin into our lives. My prayer this morning is that all across the area for as far as this service is able to reach, that men, women, boys, and girls would sense the passionate love of Christ reaching out to them. And that perhaps for the very first time today, there will be some who will respond to that love by confessing their sins, repenting of those sins, turning and and running toward you with all of their hearts and with all of their minds. And I pray that you would give us the opportunity to be able to pray with them. We thank you for your love for us and we thank you for this celebration and this, this time of Passion Week upon which we are about to embark. Continue to use this time to impact our lives for the, for the gospel and for the glory of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name, Amen.